The reality in the Enneagram is that the best part of you is also the worst part of you. And so the best part of me is that I'm a giver, but the worst part of me is that I'm a giver. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome to season two of the show. And if you're just joining us this year, we're looking at life after evangelicalism. How do we heal from some of the harmful expressions of faith that many of us have experienced? And part of that healing process will be the work of self-discovery. And part of that healing process will be the work of self-discovery. I don't know about you, but at least my own personal identity was shaped, a little bit distorted, maybe um, traumatized, if you will, uh, through the process of growing up in Christian fundamentalism, so much so that I began to see myself as someone born evil, totally depraved, and it led to a life of disembodiment, disassociation, and many times just a complete disdain for myself and and self-hatred. And so as a member of the deconstruction community, if you experience this as well, I think this episode is going to be very helpful for you because one of our tasks asks as we begin to move forward in our faith in the reconstruction process is just the journey of self-awareness, of self-acceptance and self-care. Um, not just self-love, but but as I said, self-awareness. And before we take our next spiritual journey, we oftentimes need to come home to ourselves. As the ancient oracle at Delphi proclaimed, know thyself. And I think self-knowledge is in many ways a path toward toward liberation. And so today's guest is going to help us do that. Uh, she's going to help us process our self-assessment, our self-awareness by introducing us to and or refamiliarizing us to the Enneagram. So today we're joined by Suzanne Stabile, who is a highly sought after speaker, teacher, internationally recognized Enneagram master teacher who has taught thousands of people over the last 30 years. And she is the author of several books, one, The Path Between Us, the co-author with Ian Morgan uh, of The Road Back to You. She is the creator and host of the Enneagram Journey podcast. And along with her husband, Reverend Joseph Stabile, she is co-founder of Life in the Trinity Ministry, a nonprofit, non denominational ministry committed to the spiritual growth and formation of adults. They live uh, just outside of Dallas, Texas, and they have many audio resources available, including the Enneagram Journey curriculum. Suzanne has spoken at hundreds of colleges, churches, conferences across America, and she also teaches at the Baylor Healthcare System. So, Suzanne, welcome. We are excited to jump into all things Enneagram today, and if for nothing else, learn a little bit more about ourselves. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm particularly happy to get to spend a little bit of time with you. I find myself in a number of uh, small communities where people are deconstructing and uh, reconstructing, hopefully mm. in good ways. And I have a real heart, I think, for people who have been hurt by the church. Mm. Yeah. 
we are really excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Um, before we jump into Enneagram questions, um, could you expand a little bit more on your last comment there? What what gives you that heart for people who have been hurt by the church? Um, well, I've been hurt by the church in a, a different way than many people. And I, I grew up United Methodist in a lovely community in the panhandle of Texas. So I honestly don't have a lot of theology to deconstruct, hmm. but um, I am uh, married to a former Roman Catholic priest. Oh, My wow. husband went to seminary at 13 and was hmm. with the Vincentian Fathers uh, until he was 40. And um, when he left the priesthood, um, there are questions you have to answer in order to leave with a blessing. Hmm. And um, he was unwilling to answer those questions other than honestly. <laughs> and so um, he was excommunicated from the Catholic church and marrying a divorced woman just made that worse. And, mm. you know, he was a really good Vincentian for 26 years of his life. Mm. And it's a process that's bigger than his order of priests, but that's hurtful. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, He's now a United Methodist pastor, and we try in Life in the Trinity Ministries to have room and space for people who have been hurt by the church. I, I, I've wanted to break up with the church lots of times. I just mm-hmm. can't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's because I'm supposed to stay there and be a voice for the people I know who have been hurt by the way we sometimes do things. Yeah. Well, thank you for your work in creating that space. It is definitely needed. Um, so I just really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we look to the Enneagram, I would say in the past number of years, it seems that everybody's talking about it. Uh, in your opinion, why has it gained popularity? And can you also give us your reason why, what it is and why why it's so significant? Um, sure. Well, I call what's happened in the last couple of years trendy Enneagram. Okay. <laughs> uh, That's honest. <laughs> Father Richard Rohr taught me the Enneagram third, uh, 31 years ago and uh, told me not to talk about it for five years. Hmm. And I'm a real talker. So I don't know what made him think I would follow that, but I did. <laughs> wow. And if you study something for five years, then you know that you know that you know it. Mm. And I would say that my Enneagram work has to do with the Enneagram and, meaning I apply the Enneagram to life and all the things that we have to do. Hmm. And um, it's interesting. There's a, a woman whose name is Sybil Macbeth. She writes books about praying and Um, I was at an event speaking where she was at one time years ago. And she said, well, are you full for the year next year? And I said, yeah, I am. How about you? And she said, no, I'm not full at all. And then I felt terrible that I had (laughs) said that my schedule was already full. And I said, well, Phyllis, you know, you teach people how to pray. And that's lovely. But I Mm -hmm. teach people about themselves. And everybody wants to know about themselves. (laughs) Yeah. So that's my answer to why it's kind of a hot topic right now. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it has always been the concern of those of us who are 
who've been teaching for a long time and who know the depth of the wisdom of the Enneagram. We've always been concerned about it being cocktail talk or uh, water cooler talk. Hmm. And uh, it is that now, but there are two sides to everything. And uh, I, I think the good side is that more people know something about it. And that's good. And the downside is that if you take a, a little short indicator or you answer uh, what your Halloween costume would be if you were a one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> then you really don't know a lot about the Enneagram. And that that is a, a downside. What I think right. will happen is that 10 years from now, I don't know, I'm getting pretty old, but 10 years from now, I'll still be standing and teaching the depth of the Enneagram. And most folks who are talking about it right now will be talking about something new. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So I took the Enneagram, I took several versions of it just to kind of, quote, get my number right. Um, I read Richard Rohr's book. I was fascinated by it. I took a 12-question assessment. Um, Then I paid for the $12 $12 assessment, um, got me my number, got me my wing, and and I thought, okay, that's it. Um, but you seem to be, as someone who is an Enneagram teacher, expert, kind of guru, I, I've heard you say you you don't like the assessment. Um, how, does, how is that possible? How can you teach this, um, have people you know want to know their number? Are we even supposed to know our number? But yet you don't like the assessment. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, uh, I can talk about that till dinner time. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, your enneagram number is determined by motivation and not by behavior. And there's no hope that a twelve question assessment can be right for uh, even a small majority of people. No hope for that. Hmm. Um, I think the Rizzo and Hudson questionnaire or assessment is the best. And I am not a fan of it either because (laughs) until the mid 1970s, the Enneagram was oral tradition for hundreds, thousands of years, Hmm. not hundreds, not a hundred thousand, but hundreds or thousands. I don't say how old it is anymore because when I guess at how old it is, my team gets way too many emails and so they don't let me use numbers (laughs) around that but it's old it's very old wisdom that's been known in every faith belief Hmm. and uh all around the world and you can't reduce anything like that to 12 questions Hmm. and there's unending nuance in the enneagram so honestly, um, I, my number one choice is that it be taught orally. My number two choice is the primer that Ian Cron and I did, which is the road back to you. It's quite good as a primer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I, I think it's quite good. And uh, in terms of it being taught orally, uh, all of my oral teaching about each number is available at SuzanneStabile.com. But I like to have people in a room for Friday night and all day Saturday. Hmm. And I teach each number for 40 minutes. Hmm. And um, we sell out most of those 
So I guess it's just because I'm really charming. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, it's your beautiful Southern accent. That's it what it could is. be that. It could be that. And I, what I actually think it is, is that I teach each number um, with facts, but also with stories. Mm-hmm. And people can remember stories and they can identify with them. And um I also think it's kind of important to know more number th- more than one number. If if it was before 1970, I would say that spiritual teachers taught people their enneagram number as a way for them to be better human beings. Hmm. And I teach the enneagram for the same reason. I don't have any choice now about people knowing all nine numbers, but that means that we are responsible then if we know all nine numbers for treating people like they want to be treated based on how they see. Right. And for recognizing that um, the, the understanding that we're all pretty much the same is so wrong. Hmm. We're not pretty much the same. We're actually very different. And to me, it's astonishing that we can all find ourselves in one of these nine types. And yet we can. Hmm. Is there a type that is more problematic than others? So I, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table here. I and so if you're a three, I'm really sorry. Um, I have struggled with threes in my past, in my work experience, in my personal relationships. Um, I'm a four. I get it. Fours can be moody and. Um, self-interested and all the things, but is there a number that, that um, tends to maybe cause more problems or do we all, no matter what our number is, bring our own problems and um, beauty to the, to the equation? Well, Gary, that's an interesting question. Since you and Kelly are the most misunderstood numbers on the internet. Yeah. yeah and exactly. you have eight over here. Right. <laughs> Um, so, uh, um, Gary, you're four and yep. that is the most complex number on the Enneagram. And that means that, um, there's always nine layers beneath what you show, tell, or share. Hmm. And so fours are the most complex number because of that reality. Because uh, what you see is not usually what you get. Fours are feeling dominant um, and thinking supports feeling. And um, Kelly, eights are, uh, you know, it's interesting to me. I'm 71. I I, I wanted to be a college basketball coach when I was growing up. Oh, wow. I was the first women's coach at SMU after Title IX. Wow. So I have fought the good fight for women's rights and equal pay and all of those things. Thank you. And you're welcome, but we're not there yet when it comes to your number. No, Mm. we are not. Can you tell me more? I will be happy to. Especially Uh, as a woman, right? As a woman that's an eight. And in the church. And in the church. Yeah. Because it's it's even more complex. Yes, it is. So... uh, Culturally, in the West, we really like male eights. Mm-hmm. You know, they're smart and quick and they lead and they get things done and they don't get lost in feelings and chit chat and all of that. 
their cult leader. And you put exactly the same gifts in a female eight, and she's a bitch. That's what yeah. people say. I don't, I don't know how many centuries are going to have to go by, Kelly, before we mm-hmm. stop that nonsense. Hmm. I hope I'm not that many. Part. I'm doing my part. So um, lots of people actually struggle with each of your numbers. But um, let me say the two of you do well together because you're each committed to the authentic truth. Mm. Right. And um, if I am teaching a room of 50 people, then which I do at my center, I have a cohort that comes four times a year uh, for a year that I get to do deep dives with. And if I say to them, all right, I want each one of you to stand up, say your number and say the number that you struggle with the most, Mm. then Every number has an opportunity to be the number that some other number struggles with the most. <laughs> so the answer, Gary, is that it it depends on the Enneagram number as to what number they struggle with. But it also depends for all of us on how healthy you are in your number. Mm-hmm. So it's possible at any given moment for any of us uh, in terms of Enneagram wisdom to be healthy, average unhealthy, in excess in our number, or pathological. Hmm. Hmm. And the reality is that most of us spend most of our time in the average range. Okay. So, um, you know, I've been at this for a long time, and if I have an hour in a day when I think I'm really healthy, that's pretty good. Hmm. (laughs) Now, I try to stay in the top half of average as much as I can. But when any of us are in excess in our number, then we're very difficult for other people. Wow. Is that because of ego or like what? what is it? And I, I know even the word ego is like, well, what do you even mean by that? But yeah. in terms of sort of living from my own interest, from my own um, expression, from my own desire to be known and loved and all of those things, which fours really struggle with, um, how do we then live um, into, no matter what our number is, into that healthy space as opposed to to being in excess on, on maybe the, as Thomas Merton would say, sort of the false self or the projected self? Sure. I, I think the one word answer is self-indulgent. You know, we can all be self-indulgent, and that would describe what happens when we're in excess in our numbers. So Mm. uh, I'll use our three numbers. So you touched on some of it, Gary, because when you are self-indulgent, then you want people to be able in an instant to go as deep as you want to go in a conversation. (laughs) And you want people to admire your authenticity and you want them to recognize that you actually see the world in a very unique way. And people I sound have, like a monster. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. You sound like a four in excess. There you go. So I love that. Me, I'm going to counter that for you and say fours love texture and color and depth and beauty. And without your way of seeing the world, I think it would be very flat and slick mm-hmm. and uninteresting. Mm-hmm. 
So put that in your pocket and leave the excess understanding where you can reach it when you're in excess in your number. So mm-hmm. you'll know that you need to stop being self-indulgent. Um, and Kelly, when you're uh, self-indulgent, you're in charge. You don't really want to hear what other people think should be done or how it could be done differently because their way won't be as good as yours. It will take way more time. A hundred percent. It will be uh, really tedious. So um, that's you in excess. But when you are in healthy space, you are mindful of the fact that there are people who need you to lead. And you're aware that you can't lead a group that you haven't joined. Hmm. And so you join the group so that you can lead the group. Hmm. And in the process of uh, joining the group, you get to discover the gifts that other people have that maybe you don't. Wow. Um, As for me, uh, the reality in the Enneagram is that the best part of you is also the worst part of you. (laughs) Right. And so the best part of me is that I'm a giver, but the worst part of me is that I'm a giver. And you're a two, you said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that means I give people, I help people when they don't want my help, if I'm in excess in my number. Hmm. And I'm ploying, uh, I hate that word, by the way. Um, I'm ploying if I'm in excess in my number, which means I'm kind of graspy and I'm too much and I want too much in return, just too much. Right. Uh, and, and so the goal is if we can recognize ourselves when we're in excess in our number. Hmm. So let me tell you one of the things I'm the proudest of in my work. And I'm I'm actually proud of a lot of it. I've worked hard and and I'm uh, I'm doing what's mine to do, which means I think I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> But one of the things that I'm really proud of is one of our four children uh, is an alcoholic Mm. in recovery. And what I've learned in recovery rooms for myself, because as a two, I'm codependent. I I don't quite understand why God created twos in a way that we have every single gift for being codependent. And yet we're not supposed to be. Wow. So it's a sweet spot for me and it's dangerous for my people. Mm-hmm. And um, in doing 12 step work, what I have learned is that when people who are in recovery are about to relapse, they're in excess in their number every time. Mm, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. So if you are uh, in recovery and you know your Enneagram number, and if you have a sponsor who knows the Enneagram, then, or a friend or a partner or a spouse, then your observable behavior is a red flag that you're in trouble. And is that both good good excess and bad excess? Well, there really is no, it does, but there's no good excess. Excess. Good is balanced. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And what we have to balance is thinking, feeling, and doing. Hmm. So twos, threes, and fours are feeling dominant. Five, sixes, and sevens are thinking dominant. Eights, nines, and ones are doing dominant. Hmm. And whenever you are uh, too, too much in your dominant center, 
And that's the only center of the three centers of intelligence that you're using. Then you're in excess in your number. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you're balanced in all three, then you're healthy. Gotcha. So fascinating. I would love to circle back to the beginning of this conversation um, and our numbers and women. I think the church is hurtful for eights and ones. This would, would be my theory. What what would you say would be necessary for those of us who have grown up in the church who are who are in these different numbers? What would be a road to healing or um, self discovery? What would you recommend? Okay, I'm gonna. Um, I, I've I have met and sat with and taken a walk with and read emails and letters from people of every number hmm. who have struggled in the church. So I'm yeah. going to run through the numbers real quick in relationship to that. Okay. So ones are born believing that they're, and I don't know why, so I don't have the answer to the question. So don't send the text <laughs> or the email. <laughs> but ones uh, arrive on the planet believing that they are not good. Mm that they're uh, somehow flawed in a way that they have to make up for. Hmm. And they have an internal critic that criticizes them all the time in their heads. They think other people have that same voice, or I've run into many who are deconstructing who thought that voice was the Holy Spirit telling them they're terrible Interesting. And, and that they can't do things well. And um, that, that's just not true. It's all ones across the board deal with an inner critic. So whatever is handed out as the one and only right way to do things, ones try to grab hold of because since they believe that they're not good, they desperately want to be right or correct. Hmm. And the church seems like a path toward that until you find out that it, it overemphasizes uh answers that are not necessarily true for every human about hmm. what's right and good. For twos, um, particularly female twos, the church supports you being in excess in your number. Mm. Wow. When I'm behaving badly, I used to think that was Christ-like. When I'm helping everybody and taking care of everybody who crosses my path, you know what that always meant was that the people I love the most and that I'm the most responsible to and for were not getting their needs met because I was saving somebody else. And, uh, you know, that's not all mine to do. I have no. to ask the question every day, what is mine to do? Is this mm -hmm. mine to do? What is mine to do? And the church loves female twos because we just fall right in line with giving and, and doing. And by the church, I mean not every church, not every church community, but uh, – churches that are representative of the hurt that people have experienced, whatever they are, whatever denomination they happen to fall under. I think they're everywhere and they're not all churches at the same time. Hmm. For threes, um, threes have this way of being in the world where they intuitively just read a room and know what it would look like to be the poster child for that group. And then they become <laughs> the poster child. <laughs> The problem is they are the poster child for all of the groups that they belong to. And that means that they change from time to time. So you can, a, a three can wear five different 
iterations of themselves in a day and be really good at each one. So when the church holds up the image of this is who you're supposed to be, a a three can be that. They Hmm. can look like that and sound like that and dress the right way. But all of that just further separates them from what is their internal work and their true self. For fours, fours uh, believe that they are flawed in some significant way. And um, some churches, um, churches that have um, produced people who are deconstructing, and there's way too much agreement with the fact that you're flawed in some way. When the true teaching is that, that can't possibly be true because God can't be anything other than love and God can't be anything other than faithful. So there's no such thing as a flawed human being. We all have flaws, but we're not flawed as human beings. And fours can really fall into, and, and this I hear from fours who are churched and fours who are not churched. Over and mm-hmm. over and over I hear this said in one way or another. I'm either too much or I'm too little all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. For fives, uh, most things are a head trip. And a spiritual journey is not a head trip. No. And so fives who are thinking dominant try to work out everything and figure out everything and file everything in their heads. And that leaves up heart and gut and body and all the parts of ourselves that make us each holy. For sixes, um, sixes doubt themselves, and uh, they don't trust themselves. Hmm. And uh, I very seldom say that something is immoral. Hmm. But every Enneagram number is associated with uh, a sin or a passion. It's the seven cardinal sins plus two. I don't use sin language anymore. I use passion because too many people have been hurt by the word sin, but you have to kind of explain it. So the passion for sixes is fear. And um, I happen to think there are more sixes than any other number. Hmm. And I think it is immoral to manipulate people with fear. Wow. And if you don't trust yourself, what you do is you either trust a charismatic person who has a platform and a following, or you trust a belief system. And uh, it's pretty easy for the church to take advantage, for unhealthy church to take advantage of any REM sixes. Hmm. For sevens, uh, they actually struggle with a, a half range of emotion, and it's the happy half instead of a full range of emotions. And so uh, for an an unhealthy seven in an unhealthy church, the prosperity gospel works. That's fascinating. I don't think the prosperity gospel is the truth. Right. Um, So that makes it by its very nature manipulative. Um, For eights, (laughs) 
there's just no room in unhealthy churches for people to be sure of themselves. And I think eights were put on the planet because there are times when we need people who can think fast and think fast on their feet and who can think about problems that are just two feet ahead of us and solve them before we get there. And we need eights in, in our lives at certain times. And it is described by unhealthy churches as uh, vanity or a lack of humility or people not knowing their place. And the sad thing about that is that churches who teach that are, are make up a body of people who don't want eights to be eights except when they do. (laughs) (laughs) And so the message is don't be you. Oh, but wait, we need you to be you right now, but we might not want you to be next Sunday. Wow. (laughs) And for nines, uh, nines, the, the childhood messages that nines grew up with, the unconscious message was it's not okay to assert yourself. And so they picked that message up somewhere. And the lost message was, is um, your presence matters. So nines don't think their presence matters. Hmm. So, um, you know, you can fall under uh, untrue teaching um, and merge with it if you don't think you can ever raise your hand and ask a question. Or if you don't think you can ever assert yourself by saying, I don't agree with that. Even if it means you just assert yourself in the morning while you're brushing your teeth. Hmm. And so uh, the churches, unhealthy churches are a hard place for ones and sixes and nines to ask questions that they need answers to. Wow. I. We should be paying you for this, actually. I mean, like, this is therapy. Um, Are you spoken to my soul? Yeah, I need a co-payment for this this episode. Okay, well, I'll tell you how you can pay me. Okay. Okay. Uh, Until I was invited to be on your podcast, I didn't know that this podcast existed. Mm -hmm. And I will be sharing it with many of my people. And uh, you can pay me by giving me another opportunity at some time to answer some of your questions and uh, to, to be able to feel like I can fully answer a question without worrying about the time limit that we have today. So mm-hmm. if you want to pay me, then uh, invite me back. Oh, we totally will. Uh, yes, please. Uh, yeah. Part two. Right. Well, and I, I actually think it's a, it's an entire series that, yeah. you know, we could we could dedicate to to these questions and, and so many more. So uh, I know you are on a time commitment today, but um, maybe just a couple of more questions before we leave, if if they can even be answered quickly. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I'll try. I know. Okay. I, I know in your in your book, your new book, you talk a lot about soul work and, and you've hinted already at some deep soul work, but what does that phrase mean to you? Um okay. Uh in relationship to the Enneagram, it means this. We are each either thinking, feeling, doing dominant, and we are each either thinking, feeling, doing repressed. So p- silo that. Um, I'm married to a man who has had a spiritual director since he was 13 and he's 
74. Hmm. And I've had a spiritual director since I was 37. And I had no idea growing up as a little girl in the United Methodist Church that you could grow your soul. I thought you could hurt your soul, but I didn't know that you could grow it. And I don't think you can hurt it now, actually. Um, I don't think the church gave me that. I don't know where I picked that up. Church I grew up in didn't give me that. But I didn't know I could grow my soul. And so what I've learned over the years in an effort to be the healthiest person I can be is that there are spiritual practices that are available that will help me grow my soul. Hmm. And um, my inclination as a two on the Enneagram, meaning I'm feeling dominant and I'm thinking repressed, is to choose spiritual practices that enhance my feeling dominant, lovely place where I like to hang out. So my spiritual director insists that I do a lot of soul work alone. Because as a two, if there's even one other person in the room, then I'm focused on them and not me and my work and who I am and who God is and who I am in relation to God. Hmm. So I have to give up that comfy spiritual practice for a challenging spiritual practice. Hmm. Uh, Like silence once a month. Um, Not my gift. Um, So the other reality is that I have to read nonfiction and I have to have spiritual practices where I do things for other people in secret so that I don't get all the good feels from appreciation. As a two, what I really want is to be loved. I settle for appreciation. <laughs> so that is, uh, that's soul work for me. Mm. The new book, The Journey Toward Wholeness, has some examples of soul work um, for every number. But the other thing is soul work means that you recognize that you have to do your part for spiritual transformation. Mm-hmm. You, you just don't, no angel appears and says, oh, okay, I brought you transformation and now you're transformed. <laughs> and um, transformation usually occurs when something old falls away. So you can't control when those times are going to come. But I always keep the table set in case a transformative opportunity comes my way, which doesn't mean I always know it or I always get it right. I'm not saying that. But by doing soul work, I'm, I'm ready for the opportunity or I try to be. And um, that means that I have to be willing to give up something. Hmm. There are things that you just have to give up for transformation. And my new book asks some good questions about are you willing to give up these things? And some days my answer to the questions that I asked in the book is yes. And some days I can say yes to three of them, but no to the rest. And I think it's just a journey. But I think there's a difference in uh, being hurt and protecting our souls mm-hmm. and guarding our souls. And I, th- I think soul work makes you vulnerable. Mm. So I think we have to guard our souls. But I think when we protect them out of hurt and pain, we also keep out things that could be good for us. Wow. Wow. 
<laughs> it's beautiful because it, it seems that we talk about spiritual practices in a very general way. There's a list of them, silence, solitude, prayer, fasting. Yeah. I mean, and not at all are they specific to the individual. Uh, so what a profound way to know yourself. I, I really want to ask for examples for Gary and I, but maybe that makes me too selfish. Can we each have a spiritual practice that suits our Enneagram number? Yeah. yeah I promise to still love me after I give it to you. A hundred percent. We'll be back. All righty. So Kelly, you need to uh, volunteer at a children's hospital, either uh, a hospital like uh, a Scottish Rite hospital where children have um, different uh, physical uh, differences that can't be healed, but can be um, adaptable in ways that they can make their way in the world. Because wow. that's something you can't fix. Mm -hmm. And it'll help you learn to bring up feelings. Huh. And Gary, as a four, uh, here's one of my favorites. My guess is if you ever do the grocery shopping. You I do. I like going to the store. Great for you. Good. I'm so happy for you. I bet you go to a store where the, the, the fruit is all laid out beautifully. Mm -hmm. And they have the right lighting on everything so that it's so appealing. And I need you to go to the oldest grocery store in where, where do you live, Gary? Monument, Colorado, and it's Safeway. And I hate it. It's, I, I, I call it wretched, <laughs> wretched Safeway. There you go. Safeway is not Jank. our sponsor. <laughs> well, it will be transformative for you. For you to buy your groceries at Safeway and see what beauty you can find there. Wow. I have a really good friend who is a very well-known portrait painter who lives in Austin. And I told her she had to stop going to, uh, you know, the beautiful places and go to the least beautiful. Mm. And she did. And mm. after a few weeks, she started finding the most beautiful people there. And then she asked some of them if she could photograph them so she could paint them. And she paints, you know, enormous portraits, not just eight mm -hmm. by ten. And wow. it was transformative for her. So give it a try. I will. I, I, I will. I yeah. won't say I'm going to go to Safeway today, but I will go to Safeway <laughs> this week. I promise. So you just you just agree with Kelly that you're going to go and then she can hold you accountable. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. And we'll I'll do, do the same. Okay. I'll take you up on that challenge. <laughs> and, and you know, Kelly, it doesn't have to be that exact example, but it has to be somewhere where you can't fix something. Hmm. I don't like that, but I will yeah. do it. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Suzanne, this has been absolutely incredible. I, I know as a parent, you're not supposed to have a favorite child. I know as a podcaster, you're not supposed to have your favorite episode. <laughs> but I, I must say this has been one of the most insightful, practical, mm -hmm. personal conversations we've ever had. So we will take you up on the offer to have you back. Uh, I, I see an entire series on the Enneagram and on spiritual practices for each number as well as where we're working well and where we're doing badly. Um, but your new book, The Journey Toward Wholeness, Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance and Transformation um, is out. And I, I would obviously know that people can go and pick that up on Amazon. But as we close, where can our listeners find out more about you and get in touch with you and your work? SuzanneStabile.com. Perfect. Perfect. It'll get you what you need. I'm going to do a 10 city book tour next year. So come see me. 
We will. Absolutely. Are you going to come to Colorado? Will you be out? out west? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be in Denver. Okay. Are you coming right, to Canada? Perfect. No, but I want to. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Vancouver. <laughs> I'll help you set that up. All righty. Well, Suzanne, hey, guys, thank uh, you so much. This, you're welcome. But usually this is the part of the podcast where people thank me. And I'd like to flip that. Hmm. Uh, I am so glad to know that you're doing what you're doing. And hmm. I... Um, I'm so hopeful for people who are deconstructing that they can find a safe place to get some good love and care and wisdom so that they can find their way back. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it's a, it's just such an important need. I'm so proud of you guys. So thank you for what you do. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I, I feel like I got a big hug. I appreciate yeah. that. Oh, Aww. wait till you get a hug from me, man. <laughs> I'm really good at hugging. Oh, thank you oh, for your good. generosity with us. It's yeah. so meaningful. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.